This episode of Talk of the Devils is sponsored once more by Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform helping you sell at every stage of your business from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage all the way to the did we just hit 1 million orders phase. Yep, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling ETH style turtleneck sweaters or blueprints for brand new stadiums, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Plus, you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And what's more, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 support is there to help your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Now, because you listen to Talk of the Devils, you can sign up for our $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash reddevils, all in lowercase without any spaces. So go to shopify.com slash reddevils to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash reddevils. The Athletic. And have a run at Lindelof. Back to take the shot. Oh, what a mistake that is! Oh my word, what's David De Gea doing? And how on earth has the Ben Rama shot squeezed in? West Ham lead in remarkable circumstances. Mistakes are part of football. You have to deal with it and you have to bounce back because it's a team sport. And over the season, he's the one with the most clean sheets. Everyone has to take responsibility, but we, are, we need energy because both second halves were below the standards. This is Talk of the Devils, the Athletics podcast dedicated to Manchester United. Unfortunately, we need to react to another away defeat, don't we? To paraphrase an expert writer, another away defeat, another performance that deteriorated after the interval, another mistake by David De Gea leading to a goal, another collection of chances missed by Manchester United's forwards. And here is another podcast with Andy Mitten and Laurie Whitwell dissecting the defeat to West Ham. We haven't even got another game to preview on this one. I don't know how we're going to lift the mood, but we'll try and do it somehow. Laurie is with us, like I say, in London still. That there, London. You all right, Laurie? I'm good, yeah. That was some great writing, that searing analysis. I don't know who wrote it, do you? Yeah, I don't know. If you yeah, could tell like, me. Was that you, Laurie? I don't know, Andy. You'll have to check the Athletic website. It was like poetry, Andy Mitten, wasn't it? I was, uh, Laurie, I'll give you that. That was good. I like it. <laughs> well, do you know what? Our, our mutual editor, uh, Sam Brown, gave me the idea that this, you know, the, the theme could be these are the straws that could break the camel's back of Champions League qualification. And I don't know about you, but I've got the hump today. Yeah. I didn't put that one in the article. I kept that pun to myself, but I've, I've thought podcast could be worthwhile. Yeah, I've properly got the umph, mate. You okay, Ian? <sighs> <laughs> Ian looks like he's got the ump. Laurie smiled, but said he's got the ump. Yeah. Got the ump with that ump. Have you got the hump, listeners? I've got the ump. Come on, then, let's do it. Um, Laurie, you were there. Uh, I don't really know where to start, to be honest. It wasn't as bad as. Other defeats, but in some ways it felt worse because it felt like it was a match we'd seen quite a few times just this week, actually. <laughs> First half was okay, second half less so. A mistake which led to the winning goal. Like we say, it's just recurring themes, isn't it, to be honest? What was it like being there? It, to start with, it felt positive. United had energy about their play and they were creating chances and you're sort of thinking after 20 minutes, they should be ahead here. You know, the, I know they weren't uh, absolutely guilt-edged chances, but you've got... Um, Christian Eriksen, Anthony, 
Marcus Rashford, Bruno Fernandes, all having shots from kind of the 18-yard box with, with a clear sight of goal. You think at least get one on target. They were, none of them were on target. And I kind of I look back... Was it eight shots in the end? You, you tell me. I've not got those stats in. So. I, I think it was eight <laughs> shots by half-time and none on target. Right. Yeah, something yeah. like that. That should have had that in my article, shouldn't I? Um, but the, the thing that comes to my mind is, is the kind of only real save from Fabianski was, was that Marshall one at the end. I know Rashford had one just before that. But I, don't know, I wasn't sure that was going in. A little fingertip over the top. Um, but that was in, that was literally just as they put the board up for a number of minutes of extra time, which, which they had eight minutes because obviously they had the head clash between Wambasaka and Zuchek. But that, I mean, that's late in the game to have a re- first meaningful save from a goalkeeper, and then obviously just after that, you had another clear example of a forward missing a chance, which was um, Marshall just totally you know, missing the ball for his header from a corner from Bruno Fernandes. And it's like, see, it's two yards out. There was no no player near him. It was like an easy goal, really. Um, so that was one of the themes. Clearly, David De Gea's error is the main thing that we'll remember. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but it kind of brought to my mind, you know, those those times where nobody in the stadium thought the shot was going in after it had been hit. So like, you know, Stan Collymore against Tim Flowers and Matt Letizia against Massimo Taibbi, those kind of shots where everyone's like groaning. And then, oh no, he's actually gone in, you know. Um, so we can get more into De Gea a little bit, but they're they're the kind of standout features for me that you know you're supposed to keep them out in one box and put them in in another box. And at the moment, you know, United can't do that. Can't score, can they? Three goals in six matches, I think it is now. They failed to score in four of the last six games. Let's do De Gea though, because it is the major talking point after the match. Eric Ten Hag backed him as much as he possibly could, Andy, by saying that. He's going to get a new contract or he wants him to sign a new contract and stay at the club. What's your opinion? I think he will sign a new contract and I think he will stay at the club. Is that the right thing? Uh, Given that Manchester United's priorities should be elsewhere in the field, I don't have a massive problem with that. The problem is if you let David De Gea go, then finding a top-class replacement goalkeeper might eat into a significant part of the transfer budget and we don't even know what that transfer budget is going to be because we don't even know who's going to own the club. I think that David Ayer has not had a bad season. Uh, I, it was a horrendous mistake and he's quite rightly being criticised for that. I get the valid discussion about whether he's the best goalkeeper, about the type of goalkeeper that Eric Ten Hag wants. If Eric Ten Hag started afresh with... Um, a blank team sheet and an unlimited budget. I don't think that David De Gea would be that goalkeeper. I think it's natural for him to defend that goalkeeper. I think his point about footballers making mistakes is also a valid one. And I think a little bit of it is that United fans need a scapegoat and a lot of them left last summer. So he's getting extra stick on that. But he's become, unfortunately for him, a talking point. And this was Harry Maguire when Harry Maguire was playing. But because he's not playing, there's nobody to go at. But it was a horrendous error. It really was. And another terrible uh, result for Manchester United. And from looking like top four was comfortable, having recovered after that away defeat at Newcastle, now it's uh, there's three teams looking like it's for two places, but Manchester United are really poor. Can't score. Never mind De Gea's mistake. Can't score. And not even entertaining to watch. I think we must say that West Ham were very good really raised the game. I thought Declan Rice was excellent. They were aggressive. They were effective. But I'm getting bored watching Manchester United. I'm sorry. There's so many of them players are just not performing at all. And if the team doesn't finish in the top four, 
that is a failure for this season. Yeah, definitely. We'll get into that uh, in a minute, actually, but I just want to home in on De Gea for the moment. Laurie, what's your view on this? Yeah, I mean, in an ideal world, you'd say, um, thank you, David, for excellent service, I think, because he isn't what Eric Tenag would ideally want from a goalkeeper. And, and, you know, you want to be able to support your manager. Absolutely. You look at what Pep Guardiola did with Man City, went through Claudio Bravo first before getting to Edison, but he immediately, you know, got rid of Joe Hart, which sounded brutal at the time, but, you know, it's it's what he wanted and what City needed to develop. Um, look at Mikel Arteta. Um, I mean, he, he's actually replaced Burnt Leno, who's had a really good season at Fulham, who, who is good with his feet, um, with Aaron Ramsdale for a lot of money, but they backed him in that um, department. But as Andy says, the reality of the situation is that United have overspent on transfers in recent years and the budget as it stands, you know, without a takeover, even with a takeover, you know, the financial fair play regulations will have an effect. There's a bit more flexibility, I think, with a takeover, particularly if there's one where the debt gets wiped off. But um, nonetheless, this is the reality. So, you know, do you want uh, another goalkeeper or do you want a striker that will actually score these chances that United create? I mean, United up top, they're, they're so light. Um, so with De Gea, it's kind of like a contradiction isn't it? because some of his saves this season have been up there with any you can remember. Yeah. But yeah. actually overall, when I looked at the, the stats for it, um, he's underperforming his, his XG goals, uh, shots on target. So basically, like, you know, when, when a player's had a shot, what's the probability of it going in for an average goalkeeper? So it's, it's, it's only like sort of three, three goals more that De Gea has conceded than what would be expected. But it's still, it's, it's actually a sign that, okay, maybe overall that the great saves don't make up for these mistakes. And what was kind of clear, so it's, it's, it's his fourth mistake leading to a goal in all competitions. So you, I think we're talking the Brentford one, which was very similar to this one, the uh, severe one where he comes out of his goal and, and, and tries to kick it and gets it all wrong. And then the Everton one where he's kind of holding onto the post uh, for Neil Mopé's shot and it kind of wriggles through him. And all those shots are like on the ground, you know, okay, the, the one against Brentford and, and West Ham aren't close to his feet. But he used to be, that used to be his thing, right? Saving shots with his feet. And, and you're kind of thinking, is there something not quite the same there? Because um, for this one, He's sort of backpedaling a bit as Ben Rama's breaking and he doesn't seem to ever set himself properly. And then he kind of never, you know, pushes off the ground as you might expect. And it's kind of, I would have thought he'd just hold it as well. He's kind of trying to palm it round the post, whereas it felt like one that was going at such a speed that you could actually, you know, keep hold of it. Uh, and then he's sort of looking at the grass afterwards and picking out turf from his boots and, you know, the classic ruefully looking down at the ground and, you know, yeah, I mean, there'll definitely be introspection there for him. And then, then the other contradiction is that he's, you know, 15 clean sheets this season, which is what Ten Hag keeps on yeah. coming back to. And I th- that's obviously a, a deliberate ploy by Ten Hag. I think he realises the limitations, but he, he wants to kind of defend his player as he can in, in these difficult moments. Yeah, two things on this, um, Andy. Firstly, with De Gea, um, actually the mistake yesterday for me wasn't necessarily the most concerning aspect of the 90 minutes. The more concerning aspect for me was how... He reacted to that and the fact that that one mistake then became quite a shaky 90 minutes because it was only sort of 20 minutes into the game, was it? Something like that, 25 minutes into the match and perhaps fortunate to not have conceded another goal um, when Mikel Antonio was a judge to have fouled him. I think it was a foul, but, you know, again, we're going back to that thing. Could he have been stronger? Um, and, and it is a theme with De Gea. I think we've talked about this on the podcast before about how he reacts after mistakes, how he recovers from mistakes. And sometimes it seems to take him a little longer. Think back to that severe away game. The mistake that Laurie's referring to is Yarrow with his feet, but he was kind of involved in the first two goals that United conceded that day as well. 
But overall, he has contributed this season in a big way. You know, that I know Tenard keeps quoting 15 clean sheets, but he has kept more clean sheets than any other goalkeeper in the league. Um, errors directly leading to a goal. He's a goalkeeper, of course. When he makes a mistake, it's going to lead to a goal. That just tends to be the way it goes. It comes with the territory. And I do feel like you're right that there are other players in this team who are making errors as well. They might not be as notable as De Gea. They might not be as high profile as De Gea. But United had a long time to recover from that mistake yesterday and didn't even look likely at all in attack to helping the goalkeeper out of this situation. So I'm a bit torn as to whether I feel like De Gea should have a future or not because... Like I say, he's contributed much more than some of the others in that team for this season. I think that's fair comment, and I think he should have a future. If you're asking me to yes or no, I think he should have a future. Uh, what does he do when he makes mistakes? He retreats, he pulls back from his media commitments. I was supposed to do a one-on-one with him for United We Stand last May. Still hasn't happened. That's a one-on-one which he first promised us in 2014. We're now in 2023. So you sense that if there's a chance to pull back from doing something then he will do. That said, I spoke to him uh, for a rights holder after the the game at Wembley and he was good because he'd just been successful in the, the penalty shootout. I think he's popular in the dressing room. I think he's tried to adapt this season um, under Eric Ten Hag. I don't think he's a, a negative influence in the dressing room. I wouldn't say he's a strong leader in the dressing room, but I don't hear anything really bad about him like I was hearing about other players, most of them who left the club last season but your point about the other chances you're right United had four shots on target pretty weak shots there was actually a shot just before half time but it was a floundering shot 10 minutes in Anthony created a great chance couldn't hit the target Um, Marcus Rashford shot over after two minutes you're getting this flurry at the start of matches where it's like United have trained for it you know that they've got to go out on the front foot they know that they've got to make amends for the previous disappointing result. And then it reverts back to, to form. I um, think Vegost did very little, tested Fabianski about 10 minutes after half time, but not like really good shots. I'm sick of seeing the ball flying over. I think we hit the post twice yesterday, left, right. And the bar as well, I think, yeah. Manchester United do not score enough goals. That is a simple fact. Don't score enough at home. Do not score enough away. That away form is now alarming. Everton have lost as many away games as Manchester United this season. Manchester United have scored fewer goals in the last 10 minute, ten matches than Southampton. The team have stopped bouncing back. So Eric Ten Hag said after the game, we bounce back. No, no, used to bounce back. We just seem such a long way from February, United was so good against Barcelona. Went to Leeds, won the League Cup. We're still getting them stinkers now and again. Liverpool most famously, but we're bouncing back. We've now seen two consecutive away defeats now. To be fair, the schedule's been pretty unrelenting. I think that was five away games out of six in Seville. I mean, it's non-stop. 
hat tip to the travelling fans who are going to all these matches because every one of those games has been a long distance one. Especially when they know what the outcome's going to be. <laughs> well, you're going to lose. You're not going to win. You know. Did, 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 did any of you feel yesterday at any point that Manchester United were going to win that match? Because I didn't. I'm sorry, I just didn't. Well, at the start. Early on, I think I did because they actually had started quite well and they, they had the chances, but obviously that then all hinged on, on West Ham scoring. Laurie, what do you think about the sort of state that United are in at the moment, the performances they're producing, the the chances of now finishing in the top four, which are more in question now than at any other point, at exactly the point where we really don't want that to be the case. Yeah, I mean, I've I've been kind of quite ballsy on, as I say, ballsy. It doesn't take balls, does it, to say they'll they'll finish in the Champions League places? But I just was kind of confident about it. I just thought Liverpool. Yeah, they've been winning matches, but they've been quite close. And would they really keep that going all the way to the end of the season, which is what they they need to do? They're gonna, aren't they? I think by the do you look think of they it, will? I'm I'm still I'm still slightly dubious. But okay, let's let's say they will win all their games. United need three wins. Three wins, yeah, and they've got three home games, which you know, if, if you go on previous record at home, they they should do. Um, but obviously, it's not certainty. And you know, Bournemouth away, you know, they've come a cropper for Liverpool, haven't they uh, this season? So. Um, and United's away form at the moment uh, is is bad, and you know they've lost at Bournemouth already. Um, it it kind of did remind me yesterday. Actually, I've been to West Ham before under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, and it was a two 0 defeat. It was like kind of like a second goal late on, and it was it was that kind of performance where United sort of huffed and puffed, but then weren't really um, incisive at the top end of the pitch. Was that the Creswell free kick game? Was yeah, it that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah bad, I was at that off. as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, Grown in my memory. <laughs> that's it. It's just one of these. Oh no! And then the, the Bournemouth one in my mind is when they went, you know, one 0 down. I think it was Josh King, and they just had no. It, it was that period where they couldn't even come back in games. And I was sort of thinking, it feels a bit like that now. But in, yeah. but in fairness, <laughs> uh, you know, in fairness, they, they, I think they came from behind against Everton earlier this season. Barcelona, obviously, they, you know, they went one 0 down and came back to. To, you know, to well, they, they've game, not so. actually won a game in the Premier League when they've trailed at half time in the last two seasons United oh, I was wow. surprised that's when a, I read that because you do feel thing. like there is a reaction in them at times but well, well that sort of goes into a little bit about this second half dip that I feel is, is a consistent theme you know you look the Liverpool one was, was the huge <laughs> second half uh, falling off a cliff performance um, but then you've also had it um, certainly at Brighton um, Sevilla, obviously, Tottenham, obviously, you know, 2 0 up and, and going on to draw those games 2 2. So, is that uh, a kind of sense of the fatigue that's setting in where, as Andy says, you know, the, the kind of fl- flurry to start games to kind of, right, can we win this quickly? Like, like they did against Aston Villa, really. You know, I know it took a little bit of time, but get ahead and then we could just hold on to the, to the win. Um, and then if they don't and they go behind, they don't have the energy to kind of come back because I, I certainly thought. Casemiro looked tired in the second half. I mean, Declan Rice was dancing past him a couple of times. And, and Imagine if he'd not had like about six weeks off. Which well, I know. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> and I was actually looking at some of the stats. We might need to do this as a piece at some point, but I think this might still be... He doesn't have loads of injuries at Real Madrid, but he certainly wasn't playing as many games, even with these suspensions as he is for United. I'd have to go back and just double-check exactly, but it, this, this might well be one of his highest... You know, frequency seasons, even with those uh, those bands. So, is he feeling it at thirty one? Christian Eriksen's thirty one, um, and this was the first time that that midfield had, had lost. You know, uh, the twenty first game, um, Eriksen, Fernandez, and Casemiro. Casemiro and Fernandez at the end of the game after applauding the fans. Um, I mean, this was the first time that away fans have actually kind of angrily gesticulated at the players. I mean, quite a few left uh, before the end, which is understandable. It was at long injury time as well. But those that stayed, some of them were, you know, 
giving them V-sign and kind of you could see them shouting like, is this all you've got? You know, where, where's the levels at? Um, but to be fair to the players that went over to applaud, they didn't shirk away from that. And then Casemiro and Fernandez had like a, a little conflab and, you know, it, it was certainly less, uh, certainly calmer than it was after the Villa game where they had a bit of a, a row. But, you know, you could see that these are guys that were kind of instantly trying to digest what had happened and what, what can we do next? Because you, the schedule, for example, this, this is the first time they'll have a clear week since September, which I think is is big, right? I mean, I know it's United and you're supposed to have games, particularly when you're successful. That's just how it is. But um, for this squad that doesn't have that kind of quality and depth that Tenar can call on, it has been a push. And this is the first time they'll have a, a clear week because for Brighton, for example, they stayed down after the game to do the recovery session in the south, um, went back to Manchester and then did the West Ham trip in a day. You know, so, so I think flew down and flew back. You know, so that, that's a rare thing for an away game to, to not be able to come and, and kind of stay in a hotel beforehand. So I don't know if that'll give them just that. I mean, Ten, Ten Hag called it a reload, a reset. It, it was it was quite strong stuff, I thought, after the game to kind of throw it forward. So you, you hope that that will be, you know, uh, days well spent. OK, if you want to read Laurie's take on that defeat to West Ham, it's up on The Athletic now. If you're not a subscriber, you can sign up by going to theathletic.com forward slash Man United pod and you can take advantage of our special podcast price of one ninety nine a month for the first 12 months. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Well, that yesterday actually was David Moyes' first Premier League win over Manchester United since being Manchester United manager. And he was actually appointed 10 years ago on Tuesday, which means that today is the 10th anniversary of Sir Alex Ferguson announcing his retirement. And yesterday is the 10th anniversary of the biggest regret in Andy Mitten's journalistic career, <laughs> isn't it, Andy? I don't know whether it, I don't know whether it is. Um... I got told that Fergie was going to leave on Sunday the 5th of May. Oh, it's even earlier then. In fact, the previous... De- the 5th? The, the, no, 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 you're right. I'm, I'm giving you a chronology because you've mentioned regret in my career. You had three days notice then. Yeah, I got told at the Chelsea game at Old Trafford on the Sunday that Sir Alex Ferguson was going to leave. The previous December, after Braga away, I got told he was going to leave, but that was just way too close to to the story. And then, so that was on a Sunday, I told my mother. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. On the Tuesday morning, I filed a piece, which I sent for a column to an, a newspaper, which my editor subbed and had ready to go for 6am 
on the Wednesday morning because it was a daily paper. So that just shows how journalism has changed since then. Yeah, that's true. At 5 p.m. on the Tuesday, I tweeted cryptically in Spanish, the calm before the storm. Oh. Oh. I didn't break the story. So do I regret that? Part of me really regrets that, yeah. Because I know Laurie, Laurie would have just gone bang with it, wouldn't you? Oh, straight away. As soon as someone yeah, tells straight me that. Away. No, no, I, yeah, I, I, I straight away. It's, it's such a big story. You can't get that wrong. You cannot get that wrong. Unless, I, unless you were absolutely confident in it and it was purely, as you say, a kind of wanting to protect sources that you didn't go with it. Yeah. But like, it, yeah. it's such a big story. You can't get that wrong. I, I just feel like we need your mum on the pod to kind of vouch for you. Or we can dig out that tweet. You could uh, get my old editor of the paper. And only one person picked up on it, actually. Sid Lowe, the, the Guardian journalist. Ah, because he's the only one who can speak Spanish. Yeah. No, 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 no. <laughs> everyone, everyone got on that, but Sid Lowe said this piece had already been subbed and, and when it was written. But the bottom line was I didn't break the story. Could, could you have done it differently then, Andy? I would have done it differently now, Laurie, yeah. I would have broke the story. I would, I would, have, I would have stood, well, you couldn't have stood it up because it would have been knocked back, you see. Would have definitely been not back, but no. I remember that being the tricky aspect of it at the time was that people had mm. had sort of mention or they had the sniff of maybe something happening. I can remember the night before I was I was working for the Premier League back then as well, and we were doing more news back then, so it was on us to try and find out you know bits of information that we could. And there was like messages going around. There was other this very very rarely happens, but other journalists getting in touch. Say, have you heard something? What have you heard? Etc. Etc. Because it's such a huge story. The pack got it on the Tuesday around um, a golf day, which former Manchester United players were playing. So it had started to seep then um, on 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 the Tuesday. So yeah. But this is the difficult thing with stories, isn't it? And, and hopefully this isn't too tedious for listeners. But like, it's one thing you know, hearing rumours or having on very good authority that this is going to mm, happen. Yeah. It's another mm. thing, standing it up to the point where mm. you can put your name out there and say, this is going to happen. And, and there's obviously certain ways you can phrase things maybe like, you know, um, these kind of tricks, I suppose, to kind of get away, give you, hedge your bets or um, yeah, give yeah, yourself yeah. wriggle rumours, I call it, that my missus always uh, pokes fun at me for um, when I say, oh, I've given that a bit of wriggle room. <laughs> But ultimately, if it's Sir Alex Ferguson stepping down, you know, retiring, then you have to get that absolutely 100% correct. Yeah. I, I, I didn't betray the source. That is my only solace. And do you still speak to that person? Yes, I do. There we go, then. Oh, there's, there you go, then. There's benefit. There's going to be so many people groaning at us for protecting sources, aren't they? It's literally like when, when you speak to people about being a journalist, the whole like source thing, people have a real issue with it, don't they? You know, in terms of not revealing them, protecting them, etc. Well, you've got to, especially in politics, blimey. The politics is interesting, isn't it? Because it's it's kind of like you know they, they people will brief for certain reasons, won't they? And I suppose they do in sport as well. But football's um, the same, yeah. Yeah, I know, but I feel like with with football, sometimes it's just. This is honestly how I feel about something and I feel like, you know, it should be out there communicated. Um, just a, as a little aside, a very small, this is probably, again, tedious, but I had a mate text me yesterday going, I'm hearing um, Marshall and Shaw haven't travelled. I was like, where have you got that from? Twitter. Uh, and he went, sources. Yeah. And I was like, right. And then he sent me a gif of tomato ketchup. And I was like, I mean, I actually nearly started asking questions about it. And when I saw the team sheet, I was like, thank goodness I didn't waste, you know, like <laughs> messages on, on, on my mate's spurious claims. It's it's a difficult part of our job. So I'll give you an example from this season, all right? Oslo pre-season, 
I'm told that Manchester United are looking for a striker called Marko Arnautovic, but I'm told not to say anything. So I didn't say anything. And five days later, I saw that story break out of Bologna and was part of me frustrated as a journalist that I'd not broken that story? Yes, I was. Did I betray the source? Not at all. Would that source still speak to me? Yes. That's the game. Yeah. So what would you do, Laurie? I'd probably it's difficult and I, 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 it depends which story it is but sometimes you leave them and sometimes you go okay that I'll, I'll leave that one lie yeah. but then other times you kind of just keep going back and you sort of you know just go are you sure I can't write that oh I'm hearing this now you know yeah. you, can, you kind of ask around it and you can kind of get to a point where you kind of you know push it into existence really and maybe I'm giving yeah. away too much here to, to, to different people yeah. but um, <laughs> I think there's, there's ways but it's difficult you know if you're if you've got a long-standing relationship with somebody and they tell you and they just say, do not report this, and there's only one way you could have found that out anyway, that there's no there's no point in burning that, is there? No. You two have set up a very nice bridge for me. So speaking of exclusives and sources and uh, trying to make contacts in the industry, Andy Mitten is about to drop yeah. the first interview with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer since he left Manchester United. That's right, Andy, isn't it? I spoke to him for an hour the other day. Do you know where he was when he spoke to me? Driving to watch his daughter play football. At the wheel. He was literally yeah. at the wheel. It's going to say you told us on the last pod, but, but yeah. I'll, I'll let you off because that was good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was at the wheel. So, How did it feel? I, I really, I, I mean, I've, I've kept in touch with him. I, I, I like him a lot. I respect him. I think he's a good person. And uh, I don't think that the narrative around him is particularly fair to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer or some of his assistants so in August of this year I tweeted that um, the people who'd assisted Ole Gunnar Solskjaer had actually started really well and got loads of weird criticism for it I'm like what I mean just look at look at the league <laughs> how dare you just look at the league table it's just like how dare you say they've won games stop know, spinning statistics how dare you say that Kieran McKenna's <laughs> Ipswich Town at top of the league doing well well but now we've got now we've had the fullness of a season I uh, I completely stand by that and spoke to Ollie about some of those coaches, so that's what that was. That was the focus of what I spoke to him about. Michael Carrick, Kieran McKenna, Martin Pert was also an assistant. Alan Fettis, who's at Middlesbrough, um, Neil Wood wasn't working very closely with Ollie every day. Basically, every coach who left Manchester United last summer has done really well this season. So Ollie. At the wheel. How do you feel about this? He said... Tell me. <laughs> How good does it feel, Andy, in a Manchester accent? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, well, it's on The Athletic, so have a read of it. We're probably going to put it out there um, out there tomorrow. And there's different versions of the truth in football. How will history remember Ole Gunnar Solskjaer as Manchester United manager? You know, didn't win anything, did he? But there were some cracky moments. Should he got the job? Well, we can dispute that. But I find some of the portrayals of him very unfair. I think that some of the football played under him was fantastic. When I spoke to him a few months ago, he said that I've watched every single game back from when I was manager. Wasn't that bad at all. He said there was a lot of really good moments there. And I think that's a fair comment. But you'll be judged also by the trophies that you won. Gdansk was a killer. And by the end, it was horrible. It'll be interesting to see how this season finishes for United yeah. and the comparison with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's full seasons. And I mean, you just think back to that long, unbeaten run away from home 
um, you know, yeah, in, in reference at the moment. I know that was without fans, you know, without a crowd. So maybe it's you know, there's a little bit of an asterisk there, but still, nonetheless, it's it's travelling away and it's difficult situations. And they went unbeaten for a record run. I can't understand why why they're so bad away from home. I, I asked I asked Eric Tenag after Seville. What I just can't understand because in the old days, right, there were external factors like pitches, but pitches are all pretty equal now. So the psychological aspect of you know. The atmosphere, Seville. The atmosphere was was really significant, but I. It's such an intangible. I don't know the answer. Why are Manchester United so good at home and so bad away? It didn't feel particularly uh, significant yesterday at London Stadium. You know, it was it was what you'd expect. You know, United had kind of quietened them to be fair, and it was only the goal that provoked the kind of atmosphere there. That's partly because the fans are like four point two miles away from the pitch <laughs> at West Ham. I was squinting a bit at times. <laughs> yeah, there is a bit of that, definitely. If you want to read Andy's piece with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, it's up on The Athletic on Tuesday. If you're not a subscriber, you know what to do by now. I've already said it once in the podcast, but go to theathletic.com forward slash Man United pod and sign up now. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay, just a few bits and bobs to tidy up then in the final part. First of all, obviously we know that piece with uh, Solskjaer's coming this week, Laurie, but have we got anything else that we expect to drop on the Athletic? Uh, maybe takeover stuff? It, it's simmering away again, isn't it? Yeah, similar way. Um, yeah, there might be. We, we've kind of with the takeover. Some people have kind of said we haven't um, been abreast of it all, and and yeah, to be truth, other people have had really good stories on it. But we'll we'll see in time, won't we? You know the, the truth of all these, and we've kind of decided to take a bit more of a a calm view on it, just because you talk about you know sources and, and briefings and things like that. There's, there's so much kind yeah. of claim and counterclaim around that we kind of want to be absolutely assured about what we write. So that's why we've kind of taken a little bit of a pause on it. We're still speaking to people and we've got, you know, what we feel like is good information, but, you know, we're kind of waiting to perhaps put it out there entirely. Um, but yeah, sort of more, more, you know, reports out there in terms of uh, Sir Jim Ratcliffe having within his bid the option to, to for the Joel and Avram to stay. I think we touched on it last time I spoke, but also Sky News reporting this week that um, a part of the uh, agreement might be that there's a, an inbuilt clause whereby uh, Ratcliffe buys out the rest of the shares that Joel and Avram have at a later date. And, you know, speaking to an investor was basically saying this this might actually be more from Joel and Avram's side to include it so that it kind of gives them a bit of um, an insurance policy, I suppose, in case, you know, that the shares dip or what have you. So, for example, they they might say that, that Ratcliffe has to buy them at a set price that is a good price right now 
Because if you think about it, if, if they stay as, as um, shareholders with minority investment, you know, so to take 20%, but without any control, who is going to buy those shares after that, that deal has been enacted? It, it's not going to be, you know, Qatar, if, if, if it's you know, Sir Jim Ratcliffe that, that does this. It's not going to be an external investor because why would they want a minority share? We've seen with Alisher Usmanov at Arsenal, how he had like 35% of Arsenal and the Cronkies had 65% and he couldn't get any control. He wasn't even given a seat on the board and he eventually gave up and, and left. So I don't see who would then buy these shares. Um, the only person would be Ratcliffe. And would he really need to buy the shares if he's already got control? So th- this this clause that's, that Sky reported, Mark Kleinman's the reporter, he's a very good business reporter. So he's, he, he was the one that broke the story that the Glazers were going to look for you know, a sale or strategic investment. He's saying that... One of the options that they're discussing is for Ratcliffe to buy out the Glazers, Joel and Avram, you know, in future years, which I think is an interesting element to include. And, and there's also, you know, this idea that his bid is, you know, worth more than the Qatari bid, which again we don't we don't know the actual details, um, but it wouldn't necessarily be a surprise if someone who's only bidding for you know, say 50, 51% to have an overall higher value for the club because he's not actually investing as much money as, say, for example, the, the Qatari Sheikh Jassim bid would be doing. So, uh, yeah, these are just a few things that we're hearing. But, um, yeah, we'll, we'll be having more stuff on The Athletic when we have absolute confirmation. Andy, is this a sign that Jim Radcliffe listens to Talk of the Devils then? Because I'm pretty sure there was someone saying that he needs to be working on his PR over the coming weeks. I don't know who that was. I think that both parties feel that they're limited by what they can do because of the non-disclosure agreements. But I'm speaking to people most days and I know Laurie is and we're probably even speaking to the same people and trying to decipher what the truth is. But there's no hard truth because so much of it is in a state of flux. I think Ineos are actually very confident, which is something I would not have said a couple of weeks ago. And I think Manchester United fans are pretty divided on it. You're starting to see anti-Qatar flags at away matches. I think if you looked on Twitter, the sway would be completely in favour of Qatar. So what do Manchester United fans want? Well, it depends who you ask. Actually, what does that matter? Well, it matters a lot what the fans want, but the fans aren't in a position to directly influence it, although there's protests. How much did they influence it? We don't know the answer to that. I, I just want the whole thing sorted out. I think it's dragged on for too long. I think that Eric Ten Hag deserves some form of clarity as to the type of plays he can go for for next season. I would not like the Glazers to stay in charge of Manchester United at all. And... I think we might be seeing some movement in the next couple of weeks. But I was told the same in February. Yeah, the banner that Andy references was in the away end at West Ham again. I saw it full-time, no, no to Qatar, the same banner that was in the Brighton end. So it is interesting, the kind of split between, you know, full sale only from, you know, the 1958 group, which kind of implies Qatar. And then you've got other people that have serious um, concerns about what a ultimately state-backed uh, bid would do. And actually, uh, Nick Harris of the Mail on Sunday did a piece uh, today, I think it is, where he basically details the breakdown of uh, Sheikh Jassim's 9-2 foundation and, and where it can get its funds from, uh, which basically includes the state. You know, it does say it. Um, and, and I think Sheikh Jassim's people are saying that, you know, that's not where he is getting his funds from. It's just a, you know, a clause of the, the makeup of the foundation. But Nonetheless, I think it's kind of interesting. So yeah, check check out Nick's piece if you're interested. Okay, and of course, we'll have the very latest on The Athletic as it develops over the next few weeks, hopefully. Last time, I think I said it was moving finally. Uh, I don't really know what to say now, so I'm not going to say anything. Just keep your eye on The Athletic. 
for the run of Goldson. They're really starting to link up well, those two. Paris is in there. It will come to Paris. And once again, Tottenham masters of their own downfall. It's poor defending from Spurs. It's clinical from Paris. Manchester United with the three goals and surely with the three points wrapped up early in this second half. I thought I'd save a high for the end of the pod to leave people with a smile on their face rather than a grimace, which they probably would have had for the majority of this. Manchester United's women won again. So they're still on for the WSL title. They're on the verge, probably most importantly, in a sense of confirming Champions League football for next year for the very first time. They've passed the 50-point mark in the league for the first time as well. Chelsea won as well, Andy, which means obviously United have uh, still not got the, the complete advantage they have in the table, but not considering Chelsea have got the matches in hand. But still some very important landmarks for them. Sunday was good for Manchester United women. Manchester City losing was significant for Manchester United. Yes. Freena uh, will against Spurs. I watched the interview with Mark Skinner after the match, thought he was really calm and measured. And he knows that Chelsea are going to have a massive influence on the remaining part of their season. A In the cup final, which is a sellout, fantastic, by the way, selling out Wembley for the first time ever for a women's cup final. If Manchester United win a cup, that would be a big, big achievement. And then there's the league because Chelsea are seven points behind. Or no, is it four points behind with two... Two games in hand. With two games in hand. Yeah. Chelsea do play Arsenal, though. Mm. And Arsenal are very good. Chelsea got knocked out of the semi-final in Europe by Barcelona. And Manchester United are still to play Manchester City and Liverpool in the league. Now, Liverpool did United a big favour by beating City. So there's a big, big game at Lee. The day after United lose at Bournemouth in a couple of weeks, the men's team. And I looked at tickets, it seems to have sold out. I think it's a shame that the game is not being played at Old Trafford. I was told that that was because there's a series of runs around Manchester that day, which go past Old Trafford. What? A series of runs, and it's the Great Manchester Run. And it is a Great Manchester Run. You'll, you'll, you'll give it no, some respect. I, I will give it. Are you running in it? I am, yeah. Yeah, you know what? Well, I've not, I've not signed up yet, but I've, I've, you know, I've got two weeks to prepare for it, so I might, I might put my name down. So I was going to do it, but, but I was going to go to Bournemouth on the Saturday, and I'm just thinking, do I get back and do it and race you? <laughs> Mate, I'd if I was that. you, I'd give Bournemouth. I know a you would. You'd beat me. I, I, I don't know. I don't know if you'd be welcome there. Bournemouth. To be I'm going to, I'm going to yeah. walk up and <laughs> walk up and down that seafront with my head held high, mate, in Bournemouth. The big I am. Yeah. <laughs> So I think, go. I think it's a shame that Manchester United, Manchester City is not being played at Old Trafford. I, I do agree with you there, Andy, because ideally you'd like to get to a point where that you know it's a, it's a big event. But the, the other thing, I think the Great Manchester Run is a genuine logistical issue uh, where you've got road, roads closed, you know, emergency services stretched, but also the fact that they've kind of you know played all, all the games pretty much. I know they've had a couple at Old Trafford um, for specific occasions. But at Lee, and it's it's the it's an environment that they know because Wales had the same thing, you know, where they play at Cardiff City Stadium, and then you know they have World Cup playoff games, and they'd be like, "Why aren't you playing at the Principality? You know, the old Millennium Stadium, big capacity, get the crowd in." And they'd be like, "No, we like the pitch dimensions of Cardiff City Stadium, and we want to make sure it's an absolute sellout and the, the fans are on top of you." So I don't know. Do you think there's any you know? I, I, I take the point. Argument for that. I take the point. This is this is where we play all the time. But in my opinion, I think the game should be played at Old Trafford. And if that meant playing the game a day before, 
I think there would be a huge demand for it and it would allow more people to celebrate the success of what has been a brilliant um, season for the women's team. I don't have any particular love for Lee Sports Village either. It's a functional stadium, but it's 12 miles out of Old Trafford in a town without a railway station. It would be much more accessible. <laughs> Look at you laughing. <laughs> Is it the railway station aspect that's the biggest issue? You've got no respect for Lee because it doesn't have a railway station. It's got no 19th century building. Yeah. If the public can't get to a stadium using public transport, then that is a negative. Especially locomotion, eh, Andy? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, they've been brilliant. You know, the, the women's team have really kept going and their record this season is absolutely brilliant. I've got into it for the first time. I want to take my daughters to the game against City in a few weeks ago, if I can get a ticket for it. <laughs> but if they move to Old Trafford, then I may be able to get one. And now we're but finding great. out why he's upset. Yeah. It's an <laughs> yeah, but it's a brilliant time for them, no doubt. The next two matches, Chelsea in the FA Cup final and the Manchester Derby, which will have a huge say on what happens in this WSL title race. A victory against City as well guarantees them a place in the Women's Champions League. I think even a point does it, actually, to be fair. But um, let's go for the win. Fantastic. Nice to end this on a high. Uh, right, we'll be back on Thursday with another podcast, and we're facing the challenge of our own, aren't we? Because um, there's no match to talk about. Um, what are we actually going to do with our our evenings this week, considering there's... there's there's no games to consider. Um, I got asked to go to a place called Madrid, where a team called Real Madrid are playing a team. I forget the name of them. Anyway, there's no there's no football this week, is there? So I'm playing six aside on Wednesday at the Leasing.com Stadium, so I could give you a match report from that if you like. Yeah, that's the biggest game in Manchester this week, isn't it? Is Macclesfield Manchester actually? Probably not. No, it's well, no Stockport. It's not even Stockport, is it? Cheshire, isn't it? Macclesfield. It's his own. Yeah, it's not even place. great in Manchester. No, is it? it's not no, outside. Yeah, yeah, scrub that. <laughs> right, well, we've ended that. We're all a bit in a flux here because we don't know what to do because every single midweek Manchester United have had, had matches. Yeah. And I do look forward to watching Manchester United, however bad they are. But Champions League, will Manchester United be in the Champions League next season? We'd hope so. Do you think they are, yes or no? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, still yeah. Still yeah. 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 But not quite as bold a yeah as two days ago. No, I think I think we'll be all right. I mean that that final week could be I mean you, you look ahead to it, because they're playing Chelsea and Fulham. Imagine if they, they need they probably will need wins in you know, or, or they'll need certainly points at least in those two games, won't they? It could be two wins. That would be huge. I mean it could go down to the last game really, the way things are going, which would be, you know, <laughs> tense to say the least. But it's fun that way, right? Well, it is, but it's just crazy that it's got to this, isn't it, in some senses. But anyway, let's leave it there. We'll be back on Thursday, as we say, on Talk of the Devils. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Laurie. And thank you, everyone, for listening as well. We'll see you on the next one. Enjoy your free week. Go and find something enjoyable to do. Bye-bye. Athletic. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, 
has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.